Father, we thank you for your word. We just ask you to bless us as we study it together, as we look at uh, an important topic and um, something we need to really reflect on and make sure we're adding into our lives as we try to follow Christ faithfully. In his name we pray, amen. All right, well, we, before we get into today's text, I want to talk about, I want to talk about fourth century Roman history. That's what I want to talk about. <laughs> So you guys have heard of the Emperor Constantine, right? When the, the Council of Nicaea and all those kind of things. He was the first Christian emperor. Now, whether he was personally a Christian or not is questionable. Um, he definitely believed that God, the Christian God, raised him up to be the emperor. So he gave credit to that. And he, made Christ he tolerated Christianity in the Roman Empire and kind of got involved in the church in some weird ways. But um, most people think that after he became the Roman emperor that all the emperors after that were in some way at least professing to be Christians, right? That, that it kind of became a Christian civilization. But that's almost true, but it's not entirely true because there was a, an emperor, um, not, his, not his grandson, but his grandnephew, I believe, who was not at all a Christian. And um, it was a young man and he became the emperor in AD 360. His name was Julian. And he's known to history as Julian the Apostate. Does that tell you something? <laughs> if you know what that word apostate means, it means he abandoned the Christian faith. So he had been raised in the imperial court as a Christian, but he did not have exactly a lot of Christ-like people to um, follow there. You know, it was, it was mostly people killing each other over power struggles and things like that that he actually witnessed, you know, a lot of squabbling and striving for power. So at night, um, Julian would study pagan classics on his cell phone under the covers. He, he, he no, whatever, he, I don't think he had one of those, but um, he, he did secretly study Greek philosophers. It was open, you could study that stuff, it wasn't like a, but, but for him in court in a Christian sort of environment, he was, wouldn't be allowed to do that, so he did it quietly. And then when he went and lived in another town for a while, he actually met secretly with a, a, a Greek classics scholar who got him really interested in restoring the pagan Rome, you know, the true Rome, as they would have thought of it. And so um, he studied with that guy, and he thought of himself as a very sophisticated thinker, like a lot of modern people do. And he, in his heart, became loyal to Rome's pagan past. Only nobody knew it until he became emperor. And when he became emperor, he let everybody know. He renounced Christianity, and he did all he could to return the empire to its pagan origins. It's really an interesting story. He didn't persecute Christians violently because he was smart enough to know that martyrs are the things that made the church grow all those years. So he didn't want to martyr anybody. So he didn't exactly do that. He didn't attack violently. But he did a number of things. First, Christians were out of favor in the court. That was one thing. He, he brought pagans in. He made laws forbidding Christians from teaching the pagan classics so nobody could ever hear in a school a Christian perspective on those pagan uh, works. He wrote a book called Against the Galileans. Galileans was his term for Christians usually. He liked to use that term. Trying to d discredit the faith intellectually. He thought he was a, a great mind. And you can read that book at night under the covers on your cell phone if you want today. That's still, I think most of it's still around. Um, fourth, he set in motion, he set in motion plans to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem for the Jews. He didn't do it to help the Jews. He did it because Jesus said the temple would be destroyed. And he thought if he rebuilt it, then Jesus would be shown to be a false prophet and that would eliminate Christianity. It would destroy Christianity. Um, 
don't do that. Never try to rebuild something that God said not to rebuild. Now, in that case, the temple is ultimately going to be rebuilt, but he thought that, he thought that was going to be a thing. But do you remember that guy a few years ago? What was his name? Saddam Hussein? <laughs> he was going to rebuild Babylon. Remember that? And the Bible says Babylon can't be rebuilt, so God sent the Marines in. I don't know if they knew it or not, but God sent the Marines in and ended that whole operation, so don't do that. But with all of that, Julian knew that the biggest problem undermining Christianity was the morality of the Christians. Pagan worship was not exactly a moral endeavor. Especially, he was concerned about their care for the poor. So he tried to get pagan priests to live like shepherds of the flock in the church. Imagine that. He tried, he's told them they couldn't go drinking in taverns anymore. They couldn't go to lewd amusements and do all those kind of things the priests normally did. He was convinced that if the pagans learned to be kind to the poor, people would flock back to the pagan temples. And he wrote this in his book. I'm going to quote him now. Here's Julian the Apostate. Let us consider that nothing has so much contributed to the progress of the superstition of Christians as their charity to strangers. I think we ought to discharge this obligation ourselves, establishing hospitals in every place. For it would be a shame for us to abandon our poor while the impious Galileans provide not only for their own, but also for ours, welcoming them into their agape, their love. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. So what this pagan wrote here is uh, actually why I'm telling you this little bit of history. The, the church was faithful 300 years after Jesus came, the, the church was known for taking care of the poor. That was a very big part of what it was to be a Christian. For centuries, the church showed a practical love among their fellow believers and to those that were outside the fellowship as well. And it's quite telling that Julian saw such a great gulf between the pagan practices and those followers of Jesus in terms of how they dealt with people in poverty and the poor. And it's much to the church's credit that Julian saw that and tried to match it, imitating love, which was really hard for them to do. Now, by the way, he never really got these reforms off the ground because he only reigned for three years. He decided to go attack the Persians and he died on the campaign to attack the Persians. Never try to rebuild something. Anyway, God brought him to an end. But uh, now there's an even earlier description of the pagans reflecting on how Christians treat each other and how they help each other. And that goes all the way back to Lucian, the, the satirist. I talked about him a few weeks ago. Do you remember that? I brought him up. He was kind of the Mark Twain of the second century. He mocked the idea that Christians uh, called each other brother. Remember that? So Lucian said this too. And he, was, he thought he was mocking the Christians. So this, these are his words. It is incredible what pains and diligence they use by all means to support one another. They have an extreme contempt of the things of this world. Their Savior made them believe that they are all brethren. And since they have renounced our religion and worship their crucified leader, they live according to his laws and all their riches are common. So, you know, with all their imperfections, the Christians in the second century, and now we know in the fourth century as well, they practiced their faith. They laid down their lives to serve one another. They loved one another. They laid down their goods for one another. 
So last week we talked about dying to self. And in recent weeks we've been talking about the love of the brethren and how important that is. And that's why I've spent so much time here. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, we're talking about the relationship between loving one another and our resources, our stuff. Okay? So here's John's simple words, always simple but very profound. 1 John 3, 17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So the subject is the love of God again and our love for one another. And he's saying, how can it be that you have the love of God in you if you close your heart to a brother in need? Then verse 18, he says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So he's talking about followers of Jesus who have stuff. They have the world's goods. This brother in Christ is before them. He has a need. And the Christian right there has a choice, right? So John talks about the heart, the place where the affections are and the choices are made. That's the heart, the, the, the center of our humanity. And John uh, brings that up because uh, if, if the brother chooses against helping, if he, if he closes his heart against a brother in Christ, and I'm sure he has good reasons for refusing, you know. I mean, it's not like he's just being mean, right? He's always got a reason. Usually it's the bottom line. You know, I've got to watch the bottom line. You know when people say that? I've got to make sure I'm good. I've got everything's taken care of. That's actually, that's actually not love. Here, here's love, verse 16. Back up to verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So love isn't defined by emotion. Love isn't defined by my bottom line. That's the, the, my bottom line is not a limit on love. Now, you do need to budget and you do need to be responsible. You do need to think about your bottom line. Those things are important. It's not that the bottom line is irrelevant, but your bottom line should include being ready to help brothers and sisters in need, physical needs. 1 John 3.17 then flows right out of that, out of verse 16. So the first word in verse 17 is an adversative. It's the word but, you know, and it contrasts with verse 16. So verse 16 says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And verse 17 says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So laying down, laying down one's life in one of the most practical ways, which is, is sharing our stuff, that's, that's what love is. Notice how John goes from a general word in verse 16, talks about the brothers or brethren, depending on your translation, to a very particular person in verse 17, your brother. So he's talking about somebody in front of you, right? Maybe somebody in your church or somebody that you know well. It's a very particular person. He sees his brother in need. So that's probably a, bro a brother you know personally or somebody within your own church, a brother in Christ. And all of this is about loving the brethren. That's what the whole section's about. And you know he has a need. And of course, we're talking about a real need here. You know, I really want to go to the Super Bowl. Can you get me tickets? And it's not that. <laughs> he can't eat or he doesn't have a roof over his head or something like that. And, and what John is saying, in what way could you love him as a brother and not try to meet that need? It's a very challenging thing to say for us. There's no way to claim love and turn away 
a brother or sister in need. Hit the road is not a love language. <laughs> Interestingly, um, Jesus' brother James talks in a very similar way, but he isn't talking about love, he's talking about faith. So James 2.14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And then he says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So he's saying, can you really have faith in Christ and be nothing like him, have no heart like he has? So both John and James are asking these kind of revealing questions here of the closed-handed man in 1 John, the question is, how does the love of God abide in him? And if James, the guy that won't assist his brother, he says, what, what kind of faith is that? So it's, it's a lack of basic compassion, and that does not comport with true faith in Christ or the love of Christ. It doesn't fit. Now, naturally, this topic of uh, charitable giving raises a whole lot of questions giving of your goods. And the questions run all the way from how, does my, how do I budget for that? How should I organize my life around that principle? To what kind of lifestyle is demanded of me by these texts? And all kinds of questions in between those two things. And as with everything, there's a couple of simple rules we have to lay down first. One is we have to take scripture seriously in everything that it says, right? It's, it's there for us to obey. The second thing is, we don't impose on other people rules or standards or lifestyles that go beyond Scripture. So we always challenge each other to obey Scripture, but if it goes beyond Scripture and I say, well, I think you need to do it this way, um, well, that's your way. They might have a different way of handling these these scriptures, okay? So that just want to bring those things out because we work our way into this subject. When it comes to charity and how much or to whom, uh, you have to work it out with the Lord, uh, right? It's between you and God. But some people, some people are actually gifted by the Holy Spirit for giving. It's actually a gift of the Spirit. In fact, in Romans, Paul in chapter 12, he has this whole list of gifts, you know, spiritual gifts in the Roman church. And in verse 7, he includes giving along with other gifts. He says, if service in his serving, there's a gift of service. Some people just love to help other people and be behind the scenes and do all that kind of stuff. Or he who teaches in his teaching. That's what I'm doing right now. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. I'm doing that too. He who gives with liberality. I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> no, that's true. But that, that's what he says. So just like a teacher or a server or whatever, or an exhorter, the one who has the gift of giving, he should do that with liberality. He should go for it. And some people love to do that. We're going to talk about somebody later who did do that. He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, he goes on and on about that. But, so we must all give because we must all love. But for some, giving is absolutely the major focus of their Christian walk because that's the gift they have. So they're really tuned into other people's needs. They do anything they can to meet them. They're willing to sacrifice just about everything. They're willing to be really simple in their own lives, all of that kind of stuff. But now, um, let's look at the teaching of Scripture on taking care of each other in, in practical ways, providing for the needy. I want to start in Deuteronomy chapter 15. So you might want to turn back there. This is a pretty long little section there. 
And I want you to notice as we work into this text, the focus on the heart. The law is not just a lot of legal rules, you know. The Old Testament is a law code, but it's much more than that because it addresses your insides as well as your outsides. It is spiritual. So it teaches heart attitude as well as duty. So we're in Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. And I'm reading a New American Standard Bible 1995 edition, just in case, you, in case yours sounds a little different. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart. That's the first thing he says. If there's a poor person there, you should not harden your heart. That's not a law. That's like a moral principle, right? I mean, what is that? Well, the heart matters, doesn't it? Nor close your hand. There's your heart and your hand. You shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. So first, don't harden your heart. Do not set yourself against helping. Don't lock out a human being in need and don't close your hand. And then in verse 8, um, he says, come with an open hand. And how does he describe that open hand? Freely and generously. Then Moses goes into your mind in verse 9. And he, he's warning you about wrong thoughts there. Beware, verse 9, that there is no base thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother and you give him nothing and then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be sin in you. So what's he talking about there? Well, according to the law, every debt was to be forgiven every seven years. Nobody had 15-year mortgages or 30-year mortgages. Every seven years, debts would be forgiven. So, um, so let's say it's year six. And a brother comes to you, somebody in your community comes to you and says, listen, we're not going to make it this winter. I, I need you to lend me some money so I can provide enough food for my family during the winter. Could you help me? And if your mind goes, yeah, but it's year six. This guy might not be able to pay me back before the seventh year comes. No, brother. Sorry, I can't help you. You see how that works? He's calculating. I might not get paid back. I might not get paid back. Moses says, no, don't entertain a thought like that. Don't do it. Maybe he won't be able to repay you. But is there someone who might repay you in some fashion? Somebody that witnesses the loan. Somebody like God. <laughs> The Lord God, who's commanding you to be generous and have an open hand. Verse 10, you shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and the poor in your land. So the law of God asks the people of Israel to trust him to repay any loss they have in giving to the poor. 
Now, how's that repayment going to happen? Well, he doesn't say. He can bless you in all kinds of other ways than financial, uh, getting your loan paid back, right? Your animals could be healthier, or you could have a good crop a particular year, or um, sickness might not infect your family so much this year. There's all kinds of ways God can bless you. He can reward you in all kinds of different ways, ways you might not even notice because you just think it's a kind of a good thing going on, when in reality, he's actually paying you back for your generosity. Solomon teaches exactly the same thing in Proverbs, Proverbs 19, 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Do you believe that? That God can do that? Proverbs eleven twenty five: The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. So God cares about these things, and he deals with us accordingly. He repays us. By the way, have you ever heard a prosperity preacher on TV or in person tell you to give to the poor in order to be blessed and receive back a hundredfold or thirtyfold. Have you ever heard that? I never have. Ever. It's always give to them, right? What's the Bible say? Give to the preacher and you will be repaid a thousand. No, it's always, it's to the poor. That's where that comes up. In the Bible, these blessings are for alleviating human misery, not funding the mansion of some prosperity preacher and of his private jet and his big cars and all that. That's not, that's not how God repays you. He doesn't repay you for that. He says you're stupid. That's what he says. <laughs> Jesus talked about this very thing as well, but he, he, he made it a general principle. Luke chapter 6, in that version of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So it says you'll be rewarded, lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. What's the reward? He doesn't say. Maybe it's on Judgment Day, but it's going to be great. But lend expecting nothing in return. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've lent money and been promised repayment, and I never saw a penny. I, I mean, that's happened so many times. You know, I'm the one that gets the calls, so I'll go down to the gas station and buy, fill up their tank, and all. I'm going to repay you. I'm going to let me have your address. I'm going to never happen, ever happen. Does it bother me? Never, never. Not because I'm this noble guy. It's because I've just taken this seriously. I, I mean, Jesus warned me about that, so. I never expect to get repaid, ever. If I loan you money, I don't expect to get repaid. Oh, I shouldn't have said that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but truly, I'm never, in a, in a, in, um, I, I'm never upset about it, and I'm never disappointed about it. The, if you do that, I've discovered, then nothing interferes with love. If you don't expect it back, there's no relationship thing that's broken there. It I, doesn't matter. I've, I've given it to you. That's the way I look at it. That's the way our family functions. So um, then I can still love you because I'm not upset that you didn't pay me back. I'm not going to hold anything over you. Now let's look at more New Testament passages. Acts chapter um, 20 is Paul's great speech to the Ephesian elders. It's one of the great passages in Acts. They are Paul's final words to the leaders of the church that he planted. He knows he's never going to see them again. Calls them to himself. All the elders come and see him on the coast. He's going to be traveling. 
And at the end of his speech, he reminds them of his commitment not to enrich himself. Why would he tell them that? So they don't follow that path. You're not in the ministry to get rich. And he tells them to work hard. So Acts chapter 20, verse 33, Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul labored with his hands and he says we must all work hard, not, not to build up personal kingdoms, but to help the weak. We work hard for that purpose. And his last recorded words to these shepherds, these men he developed, these leaders in the church, is to remind them of something that Jesus said that was really well known but is not recorded in the Gospels. These are his final words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. A lot of people don't believe that. Well, they believe it in a vague general way, but not when it comes to real life. But it actually is. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's the Christian way. That's the way of love. There's something else Jesus said to his disciples. It's in Mark chapter 10. So you might remember that story. It's the rich young ruler just walked away. Jesus loved him. He said that, you know, he wanted to follow Jesus and he couldn't let go of his riches. Jesus said, sell all the things and give to the poor and follow me. And he couldn't do it. And he walked away sad. And then Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were absolutely shocked. And Peter said, Peter's always the one that speaks up. Have you noticed that? He said, this is Mark 10, 28. He said, behold, we have left everything and followed you. We did what you wanted. What will there be for us? I'm not sure what he was hoping for. Some kind of affirmation. He got a lot more than affirmation. Verse 29, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Oh, what can that mean? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. and what, what does that mean? He means the church. The church family. That's what he means. These men who left everything will always find a welcome. Will always have a family. Will always have a meal. Will always have lodging because of brothers that love one another. In the church. The church of Jesus provides some of the joys of the coming kingdom here. And that's what he's describing there. In each other, in each other, in the love of the brethren. It's so obvious. And that's why John and 1 John can ask, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's why that's a totally legitimate question. How can a Jesus person close their heart against somebody who has a need? It's a really good question. 
Maybe the most startling example of this open heart, open hand kind of love is, is found in Acts chapter 2 in the Jerusalem church. Listen to how the newborn believers treated money and property. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. So, you know, 3,000 people came to the Lord on the day of Pentecost. The church is booming. Everybody's thrilled. They're just in the joy of it, right? It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. That's what Lucian is mocking a hundred years later because it was still going on. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. People noticed. Jerusalem was abuzz with the joy and the generosity of these first saints, the first members of a church. And it continued on in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Then 434, it says, For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So the joy of the Lord just overflowed in this Christian community, and suddenly all kinds of things were more important than all their stuff, all the stuff they labored for all these years and collected. Some, something like it was going on in the fourth century in Gentile lands where they didn't even have a law of Moses. The Holy Spirit was moving so much on those Gentile churches. So when Julian tried to replicate Christian love among the pagans, he was still seeing this kind of attitude. So it must be said, um, in addition to all of this, I mean, these are beautiful things we're reading, that the Scripture never commands anybody to sell their property or their land and distribute it, especially give it to the church to distribute. It, that's never commanded. That's just what they were doing. And some people have said, hey... This looks a little like communism to me. <laughs> no, it's not communism. You know, in the 19th century, um, I can't tell you how many famous people lived in London, but two of them were Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of the age, and Karl Marx. They both lived in London together. They probably knew about each other. I'm sure Marx knew who Charles Spurgeon was. And Spurgeon, we know, knew who Karl Marx was. But somebody asked him about Acts chapter 2. They asked Spurgeon and they said, hey, isn't this some kind of form of communism? And Spurgeon said, they were not communists. They were Christians. And the difference between a communist and a Christian is this. A communist says, all that is yours is mine. Well, a Christian says, all that is mine is yours. And that is a very different thing. The one is forgetting, the other is forgiving. So, exactly. That kind of generosity, that level of generosity is never commanded. It's just what they were doing. It, it came from a renewed heart. It came from joy in the Lord. It came from loving one another. I should also say that giving to the poor in the New Testament has definite restrictions. It's not a free-for-all. You can do whatever you want and, hey, can you give me your, can you take care of me? First, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul 
personal responsibility is essential to the Christian community. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, Paul says, uh, Even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So we're not talking about people that are irresponsible and consistently irresponsible. And Now you can help somebody like that once or twice or whatever if you are so inclined, but it wasn't just like you can loaf around other people that work hard are going to take care of you. It wasn't that at all. It wasn't that at all. There's a big difference between somebody who has a hard time putting food on the table due to unexpected things, illness or injury or things like that, and someone who can work but won't work. There's a big difference between those, and Paul is really clear about that. So we want to have, a, we want to have the joyful generosity of the early church but also promote the dignity and the morality of work and sustaining yourself as much as you can. Those, are, those both go together. You're not helping somebody by, un, under, under, or, or by funding their laziness, I guess is the way to say it. It's just not good for a human being to loaf and take from other people, other people's labor. That's not good. In fact, that's the problem with impersonal, unaccountable welfare. You know, even from a governmental point of view, it's so easy just to give everybody money. It's much easier. But what you end up with is generational poverty. That's what you end up with. This is how we live, kids. And so for year after year, generation after generation, there's people that just live on that, live on welfare. And, and that thinking has become so extreme that now in, in many cities, governments, governments think, it's do, they think they're doing people good by letting them steal and having no consequences for it. They think that's good for people. It's really amazing. That's the fruit of denying that men have souls and a, and a, and a God-given morality. That's the fruit of that. Because if you have a soul, you have moral responsibilities. And taking care of your own is part of that responsibility and working as much as you can. Now, it's also clear in the early church that there were people of all socioeconomic positions in life, including slaves in the churches, including the rich. The end of Paul's letter to Timothy, um, his first letter to Timothy, he gave words for the rich members of the church. So there were some, right? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He tells Timothy, who's the pastor, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. No, he doesn't say all things were held in common and uh, everybody was rich, equally rich, and it was all, we all made sure everybody got the same time. Didn't say that. He just said, there are rich people there, and what do you teach them? You teach them this love for the brethren that is willing to sacrifice some goods, right? So there were rich folks. They were, they were not told to stop being rich, but they were to use their resources for good, to be rich in good deeds, be generous, and share. So that's when love fills the heart and guides the hand. That's when that comes together. That's what he's talking about. 
We had dear, dear friends who were exactly like this, very well off. He was the owner of a large company. He became a Christian and is later in life. He couldn't do enough good deeds. And it wasn't until he did good deeds to us. It, was, it wasn't until his funeral that we found out how many good deeds he did quietly when all these different people kept, well, he helped, he did this, he did that, he did this, he, very quietly. Just one of the best people I've ever known. That's how he lived. He was a rich man who gave constantly, just let it flow. But he still was well off, had a nice house, all of that. Help is also isn't always about money. Some people don't have money, but there's a lot of ways to help people, right? It's all kinds of ways. There are individuals in this church who quietly do fix-it projects for all kinds of people that they, we never know about or we never hear about. They just do it for them for nothing. That's just one example. There's all kinds of ways to help other people. There's not one way and there's not one lifestyle that we have to insist on for everybody else. You're an open-hearted Christian only if you dot, 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 fill in your blank, right? In fact, in the 70s, there was a really popular book by Ron Sider. Anybody ancient remember that book? It was called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. So Sider... Cider called on Christians to live simpler lives in order to use their resources to alleviate poverty all over the world. And he gave a really good example. He said, he said, I was thinking of buying a suit for $50. This is 1972. You can't buy a suit for $50. <laughs> and uh, he said, a child in India could be fed for a year with that $50. So he said, so what should I do? You know, he suggested that all Christians should live much more simply and give away most of their resources. Well, after that book became really popular, another Christian, David Chilton, who's a, a Christian theonomist, looked up that word, I'm not gonna explain it right now. But he wrote a book called Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. <laughs> that was kind of a response to him. And he's actually really mean to Ron Sider uh, in the book. It's not, a, it's not a gentle critique. But it is kind of useful. He says some things that are important. What we call capitalism, or even consumerism, this buying things, uh, that has had the effect, literally, of taking many, many millions of people out of poverty because it provides so many jobs. And it makes, because of capitalism and competition, it makes goods so much cheaper. And that's blessed the whole world. So it's actually a good thing to produce and make and, you know, strive and a lot of those things. Those things have a lot of good effects. So that was sort of where he was coming from. Competition for consumers helps everyday people. But some people are still crazy rich. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There are. In fact, I never heard about a super yacht until this Ukraine thing happened and we started taking them from people. So super yacht, what is that? It's a $200 million boat for fun. The fun pleasure craft. $200 million. Does anybody really need a $200 million yacht? No. And yet, somebody had to design that yacht, raw materials were acquired by other people to get that yacht and paid, workers shaped that yacht and built that yacht, they were manned by a crew, and it parks in a dock, and the dock workers take care of that. It, it feeds a lot of families, that super yacht, as goofy as that is. So there's different ways to think about these things. You, you can create jobs all over the world, uh, or you can go real simple and just give away money. You can be productive or anywhere in between those things, right? So I think, personally, I think Cider has a good point and I think Chilton has a good point, you know? That's why it's not a one 
size fits all kind of situation there. They both are saying things that we should weigh in our minds about helping real people in real situations. Lifting people out of poverty through work is awesome. And I think that's great. So I think the capitalist system is marvelous. But people are always left behind. And again, there's people that are ill or decrepit or aged or whatever that might need a hand. So both the Old and New Testaments, even Jesus himself said, the poor will always be with you. So you can't forget that. You can't just say, well, the system, they're outside the system, too bad for them. No, it's not like that. So both the idea of, of living simply and the idea of producing goods and jobs, they both have something to commend them. And I think the answer is somewhere in the middle with all of that. Live very simply. Do that to give more. That's fine. Make all you can and buy and build and then gainfully employ other people and then also give liberally out of all that money you make. Those are both good things. Those are both things that we can do. And I don't think we should insist on one way or the other. That's why they were arguing about all that. They're, they're both okay ideas. As long as you're taking what the Bible says seriously about being generous with what God has given you for the good of others and having an open heart with an open hand. Especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where the focus of Scripture is. How much though? What percentage? What are you telling me? How do I think about this? You think about it before the Lord. I'll tell you one thing. C.S. Lewis said something that was pretty wonderful about this. I'm going to read it for you. It, it helped me just think through this. Now, he was a world-famous author and a university professor, and it's amazing to read about C.S. Lewis's relationship with money because he never made a lot of money as a, as a professor, but he became world-famous and his books sold everywhere, so he, a lot of money was coming in. What's he going to do with all of that? Well, I was reading an article about this, and he said, um, Lewis, quote, Lewis would not accept the money for the original installment of the screw tape letters. That's a really famous book he wrote, right, about Satan and temptation. Um, for the original installments of screw tape letters in The Guardian. The Guardian's a big English newspaper, still is. Instead, he sent the editor of The Guardian a list of widows and orphans to whom the money was to be paid. He did the same with the fees the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, paid for the mere Christianity broadcasts. And those The Guardian paid for the weekly installments of The Great Divorce in 1944-1945. That was another big book of his. That from then until his marriage in 1957, so all those years, he had the money that he made from his books going to poor people. And then it said, um, after his marriage, Lewis made anonymous gift. Oh, I'm sorry, during that period up until he got married, because then he took in two children into his home. He changed his financial situation a little bit. But he gave away, he made anonymous gifts of two-thirds of his income. He also had a reputation for rarely saying no to people that were in need. And his friends told him, you know, people are taking advantage of you. Now, I've heard people here say that about me too. <laughs> and I understand. They lovingly say, you know, you're being taken advantage of. But he said he'd rather be cheated 99 times than miss the one person that was really in need. That was his attitude about that. And I'm not as virtuous as that, but I, I, don't think we, I don't think we're being taken advantage of if we have already processed the risks and the, the negative side of it and what could happen and, and all of that. If you factored all that in when you're helping somebody, then you're not being taken advantage of. You're just choosing to risk. Maybe it's not going to be worthwhile. 
But it is worthwhile often, especially on a spiritual side, because if that kind of generosity helps you get close to someone, that's a good thing. And they'll listen to your words and they'll appreciate what you have to say about Christ and who knows what's going to happen. That's all good. Anyway, here's C.S. Lewis's actual words. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I am speaking now, he says, of charities in the common way, like giving to, you know, the goodwill or whatever. Particular cases of distress among your own relatives, friends, neighbors, or employees, which God, as it were, forces upon your notice, may demand much more, even to the crippling and endangering of your own position. That was his advice. That's actually how he lived. And I think that's worth thinking on. Because John uses the word laying down your life for the brethren. That might be financial sometimes, laying down our lives for the brethren. It may mean less for some of your desires or preferences in life. What matters is that we take 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18 seriously. Because that's how the church won the world in the ancient world ancient days. Let me close by just reading those verses one more time. We know love by this, verse 16, 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever holds the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Let's pray. Our great Father, you always take care of us. And you command that we take care of each other, so we are to be your hands of service. Our finances are yours as well, but it's all things you got for us. So help us to be wise with your blessings and help us to know the joy of giving and knowing your approval, that you approve of generosity, that you love to see that. We live on this earth to make you known, to bring light to a dark world. So we ask that our willingness to share and care for each other might bring the light of Christ to others around us, even to those who just hear about it. In his name we pray. Amen.